0: The following message is from Temple Bible Church. For more information about the church and its ministries, visit www.templebiblechurch.org.
1: Thank you. Thank you for that kind introduction. It is good to be here with you. How many of you are there at least Friday or Saturday, one of the sessions? Wow, what a good, good turnout. Well, this morning as we talk, i to start by asking you a question. How do you view your role to the next generation? So if you're a pastor, you're a parent, you're a grandparent, you're a student. How do you view your role towards the generation coming up behind you? I uh, I teach at a Christian school part-time and I often ask my students a question. I say more than anything else, what do your parents want for you? What do you think is the number one answer I'll get in a Christian school? My parents just want me to be, to be happy or successful. Now, I'm a parent. I want my kids to be happy and successful. But I would much rather have them be miserable and failures in the eyes of the world and following the Lord than happy and successful and following the ways of the world. Thank you. I knew there were at least some Baptists here. <laughs> I had a student come in and talk with me one time when I was teaching. This is a few years ago. And he came and he just looked so troubled. He said, he goes, Mr. McDowell, can we talk? I said, sure, what's going on? He said, I had a conversation with my dad last night. I don't know what to do. My dad sat me down and said, son, I'll pay your way all the way through college and all the way through medical school. I said, what's the problem? He said, I don't want to be a doctor. I think my dad thinks it looks good for him to have a son who's a doctor. And then he said, and my dad looks at me as his future nest egg. Now I know this dad loves his son, but he has a perspective of the next generation that shapes how he relates to him. So what's your perspective of the next generation? Well, the Bible has a perspective that's different than we often have in the church, Sometimes we look at the next generation and we think they're on their phones all the time. They dress weird. They talk weird. I don't like their music. And that's the lens through which we see them. Psalms 127.4 says, like arrows in the hand of a warrior, so are the children of one's youth. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior, so are the children of one's youth, meaning the greatest resource we have in the body of Christ and you have as a church is not this fantastic building. It's the young people that God has given you to fight for and live for the kingdom of God when you and I are gone. So how do we do this? How do we pass on our faith to the next generation? I'm glad you asked because that's exactly what we're gonna look at this morning. We're gonna look in the book of Deuteronomy. You're welcome to turn there. If you can't find it, Matthew, Mark, Luke, Deuteronomy. (laughs) Now, you know the story in Deuteronomy or the context. Moses has just spent 40 years wandering through the desert with the generation after the generation that came out of Egypt. He's been shepherding them, and now he's giving them a final speech in this book, how they can have success in the land, even though he won't be with them. And something is changing. They're no longer going to have pillar of fire by night, cloud by day. They're going to live in buildings they didn't construct. They're moving into foreign territory. How do they have a faith that lasts when everything around them changes? And that kind of sounds like where we are today, isn't it? The world is changing fast. We're going to find some timeless truths in this passage in Deuteronomy and it starts off in Deuteronomy chapter 6 if you want to find it chapter 6 if you can't find it it's right after chapter 5 the first session laughed a lot more and there was like a third of them just for the record I'm challenging them to be with me here Deuteronomy chapter 6 and if we get the screen to work great if not follow right along in your scriptures Deuteronomy 6 1 says this this is the command the statutes and ordinances the Lord your God has instructed me to teach you. In other words, Moses is saying, here's commandments for you. They don't come from me. I'm just delivering what God has given to me. That's it. And then verse two, he says this, do this so you may fear the Lord your God all the days of your life by keeping all his statutes and commands I'm giving you, your son, and your grandson so you may have a long life. Now, this is so interesting to me because I think we tend to think about our lives on the number of years God gives us and then we're gone. But here's God starting this movement through this nation of Israel about to give him the law and he says, these laws are not just for you. They're not just for your kids. They're not for your grandkids. They're for every single young person that will come after you. Have you thought about how your faithfulness or lack thereof in your life can echo for generations? I saw this in the life of my father, and I appreciate you sharing that story. That's it, it's amazing. But some of you might not know that my father grew up in a small town in Michigan. His dad was the town drunk. My dad was physically abused by somebody for seven years until he was old enough to slam the men against the wall when he was 13 and said, if you touch me again, I'll kill you. Someone that worked on their farm, and he meant it. My dad's older sister committed suicide. I grew up hearing these stories, and we were sitting around as a family not too long ago. And my mom was sharing funny stories of growing up in Boston. And my younger sister Heather goes, "Hey, Dad, share a good story, a good memory you have when you were a kid." Awkward silence. My dad goes, "Kids, I don't have one." And I sat there and I thought, "Oh my word! I mean, really, as a day go by I don't have at least one good memory? Let alone a week, a month, a year, a childhood?" My dad turned 79 recently. He's been with Crew for 55 years, Camps Crusade for Christ. I told my dad recently, I was like, Man, dad, you're old. When God said, Let there be light, you flipped on the switch. When we started ministry, the Dead Sea was only sick. You can go visit it on your trip to Israel coming up. And my dad laughed because he has a good sense of humor. But by all sociological standards, he should be dead or he should be in prison. But God got a hold of my dad's life. And it's not just the books he wrote or the speeches that he gave or the trips that he's made. If you ask him what he's most proud of, he'll say, you know what? My son and my three daughters love the Lord. And my 10 grandkids follow the Lord. That's how powerfully someone who follows the Lord can echo for generations. This is why this passage is so important. Now, what we, where we start in verse four is actually called the Shema. Now, you can make the case that this is the most important or the central passage in the Old Testament. How can I say this? Well, Jesus was asked, what's the greatest commandment in the law? And he cites this passage. Orthodox Jews today will still repeat this passage twice a day. So let's take a look at Deuteronomy 6 for the Shema. And it starts off with: Moses says, Listen, Israel, Yahweh is our God, Yahweh is one. Some translations say, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. What's interesting to me is one in the Hebrew is one cluster of grapes that also has individual grapes. There is one God, but it's like the Bible's hinting that there's a plurality in God, namely that God is triune. I find that fascinating. God is relational in his being. But right away with this passage, we learn something powerful. And I think it's this. To make God the Lord of your home or your life. If you care about the generation coming after you, Step one is to ask, Who or what is Lord of my life and who or what is Lord of my home? I'm guessing all of you at some point are like me, where you've had something, you send a message through a text and you wish you could reach in cyberspace and have it back the moment you sent it. I was landing on a plane with a friend of mine. I didn't know he was on the flight in Orange County, where I live, and I looked ahead and I saw him. I was like, Oh my goodness. We're pulling our bags down. I gotta tell him to stop so we can talk afterwards. So I texted him. I said, hey, man, no, I said, hey, punk, turn around. I'm right behind you. And I sent it to my mom. She was actually reading at night home alone. Now, my mom totally has a good sense of humor. She texted back word for word hey, son, I think you got the wrong punk. I was like, oh. Rule number one, don't call your mom a punk. Well, the funny thing with this is the reason I mentioned is a few years ago, I had my first public debate with this high school teacher who's a PhD across town. He was sued in a court of law. A kid recorded him under the desk and he said some disparaging things against Christians. And we were debating God and morality. And a girl emailed me ahead of time and said, can I interview you for the school paper? I said, sure. And then the next day I got an email from her and I'm reading it thinking, why is she sharing this with me? Like painful, hurtful, depression, loneliness, anger. And then I realized she didn't mean to send this to me. So she comes over for the interview she's done. I said, you know what? You copied me on this email. I know you didn't mean to send it to me. I read it before I figured that out. I'm not a counselor, but it sounds like you're burying some heavy stuff down. Or do you want to talk about it? She goes, sure. As we talked, you know what essentially she said? She said, I was in church last Sunday but what my parents don't even know is I've completely rejected their faith. I said, why? She said, I just can't believe there's a loving, personal God when my father has been so distant and such a workaholic. Do you see what Moses is talking about? Make God number one. Not a hobby. Not work. Make God number one. Who or what is Lord of your home? You know the best way to know this? I think it's two ways. Number one, pull out your checkbook, if you still have one of those, how you spend your money, and look at your calendar, how you spend your time. Jesus said where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. But I think when something goes wrong and there's like a crisis, a financial crisis, a relational crisis, a health crisis, It's like kids are watching, asking, do these significant adults in my life really believe the things they tell me that they believe? I was driving in Northern California. This is probably 12 or 15 years ago with a pastor. And we were driving probably five or six hours on this 99 freeway. It's like you're in the middle of nowhere. Like a lot of freeways you would be on in Texas. Feels like there's desert. There's nothing around me. And don't get offended. I was born here. All right? You know what? You always know when you're in Texas, by the way, because whenever I go to the waffle machine in the morning in the hotel, it's the only state where it's shaped like the state. (laughs) It's true. (laughs) So we're driving up this 99 freeway in the middle of nowhere, just this pastor and I, and all of a sudden this loud screeching noise comes from the car. And I'm thinking, oh, man, I should have driven. We should have left earlier. We're going to be late. God, you're not going to let me show up late. I'm going to speak to students about Jesus after all. And we pull over, and without hesitation, the pastor turns to me. He goes, let's pray. I see problems as opportunities to trust God. And I sat there and thought, oh, my goodness. I was so convicted. I thought, compared to this man, I'm like a spiritual raisin or a grape nut, He really (laughs) believed it. God was Lord of his life. Who or what is Lord of your life and who or what is Lord of your home? Because our kids are watching. Then Moses goes on. He says, love Lord God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. In other words, love God with what? Okay, that was pretty weak. Thank you. Love God with everything. Love God with everything. Why is it important that you and I love God? Because kids tend to follow the passion of their parents or their grandparents or their coaches or teachers or mentors or significant adults in their life. My son is a freshman in high school, and when he was was in first grade, so he's probably six years old, I was driving him to school and I said, Scotty, what do you love? And he goes, Well, in football, I love the Chargers. I said, okay, what else do you love? He said, in basketball, I love the Clippers. I said, what else do you love? He said, in baseball, I love the Red Sox, and I hate the Yankees. He was six. Funny thing is he gave sport answers because in our family, we hate sports. You don't believe that, do you? I'm like, how are the Chargers doing? No, I'm kidding. Now, why did my son say he loved the Chargers? Because his grandpa, my wife's dad, my father-in-law, Coached high school football forever and my wife's family rooting for the Chargers family tradition. Why did my son say that he loved basketball? Both my wife and I were college point guards and I loved the game of basketball. Why did my son say he loved baseball? Because my mom, his Grammy, grew up in Boston and she has imbibed everything about Boston, especially love for the Red Sox. So much so, you know those cars that are minis? She got it red and white. Because that's the color of the Red Sox. Even when they don't play, she's checking her phone just hoping that the Yankees lose. (laughs) Well, the funny thing is, we never had to sit our son down and say, son, we love the Chargers in the family. We love the Clippers. And actually, for the record, I'm a Spurs fan. We didn't have to sit him down and say, we love, you know, the Red Sox. He saw his mom and his dad and his Grammy get excited about this. And he naturally picked up a love for sports. In fact, I asked my son, he plays basketball and he'll probably play volleyball this year. He doesn't play baseball. I said, If you could go to any sporting event with anybody, what would it be? He said, I think I'd go to a baseball game with Grammy. I said, Why? He said, Because she just loves the Red Sox so much. Isn't that powerful? Your passion and my passion is shaping the passions of this generation behind us. So what do you love? What do you get excited about? What do you want to talk about? And the flip side, what breaks your heart? Because that's gonna shape the passions of the next generation. You know what's interesting about the first two things in this passage? It's about passing on faith to the next generation and the first two are not about kids, are they? They're about us. Instead of turning and trying to fix kids, look in the mirror. Who is God of my life and do I love God first? I think it's where it begins. Moses continue. Oh, actually, he Moses continues in, in Deuteronomy 6.6. 6. He says, These words I'm giving you today are to be in your heart. Now what's interesting, he gives them commandments and statutes, statutes they can't compromise. But it's not about the statutes. That's what legalism is. But the laws are the way we love God and the way we love other people. These laws are to be in our hearts. If you want a formula for turning a young person away from the faith, make it legalistic. That's a formula. Make it about rules. I talked to so many skeptics and atheists and in kind of my line of work and in my relationships. And the majority today have some kind of religious background. It's changing a little bit with Gen Z, but the majority of adult atheists have some background in religion. And what they'll so often say is, it was about the rules, it was about the commands. I didn't know why, and it was never in my heart. This kind of played out with one of the most famous artists of all time, Vincent Van Gogh. You know, Vincent Van Gogh grew up wanting to be a pastor, But he couldn't because he couldn't master Greek in his denomination, but he became a missionary. And from letters, he was seeing people come to Christ. He was ministering to people. He'd give somebody the shirt off his back, the shoes off his feet. He just would sleep outside and minister where people are at with the blue-collar workers, in particular, many in the coal mines. But his missionary license came up for renewal before the board, and they denied him for two reasons. They said, number one, you're not a good enough preacher, And number two, your appearance is unbecoming of a minister of the gospel. Clearly, they never read the story of John the Baptist. (laughs) Falls into depression. About six months later, letters start to crop up, and we have books that compile the letters of Van Gogh that give insight into his life. That very interesting. He starts talking about wanting to be an artist. I think he sold one painting in life for almost nothing. Now they're worth millions. You know how much I had to pay for my Van Gogh? I do have a Van Gogh ripoff I bought across the border in Mexico. I was actually taken to pay $40 for it, and I stopped. It was this painting, A Starry Night, and there's a big white blotch in the middle of that bush. I told the guy, I'm like, do you have another one? He goes, oh, I fix it. Pulls out a Sharpie, colors it in. I was like, all right, that'll work. So this famous painting, I have a ripoff of it because I love it on my wall in my office. Now, you've seen this painting, but do you know the story behind this painting? What's Van Gogh saying? Keep in mind, Van Gogh was burned by the church, but he still believed God revealed himself in nature. So your, our eye are drawn to the sky, right? It's alive, it's vibrant, it's active, because Van Gogh believed Psalms nineteen one and two that the heavens declare the glory of God, the skies proclaim his majesty. Day by day they spew forth speech, night by night they display knowledge. But if you look in the valley in the center, what do you notice? A church. What do you notice about the church? The lights are off. It's dark because the church is dead. You see what Moses was writing 3,000 years ago? Here's commandments and here's statutes, but they're to be in your heart, lived out in relationship. And Moses goes on, the last verse we'll look at he says, Repeat them to your children talk about them when you sit in your house, when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up. In other words, talk about God when? All the time. Now I skipped 6.3 which talks about not exasperating your children so there's a balance that we have to find. But essentially what I think Moses is saying, here's the way I put it, is this. To make God part of the rhythm of life in your home. Make God a natural part of the rhythm of life in your home. Why is this so important? Because our increasingly secular culture compartmentalizes faith from most areas of life. Our secular culture says you can worship God in a church building, you can worship God at home, but it shouldn't affect the way you approach politics or you think about culture or the way you vote or how you look at government or run your business. It should stay in the privacy of your home. The problem is, Christianity is a worldview that cannot be compartmentalized. God is creator of all and calls us to live it out in every area of our life. But I think we compartmentalize our faith in ways we don't realize. So I was an undergrad at Biola, late 90s, and I remember we'd have chapels at the end uh, commissioning students going on mission trips for the summer. Last chapel of the year, and students would go to faraway places. They'd go to Asia, they'd go to Africa, they'd go to Israel, they'd go to Australia, Texas. <laughs> students would stand, pray for them, worship, message, chapel was done. And I remember sitting there thinking, why are we only praying for people going on spiritual mission trips? What about people going to work in a lab for the summer, or Google or IBM for the summer, or Coach for the summer. Isn't that a mission field? But without realizing it, we compartmentalize things, which is why our new motto, I love it, Biola, is think biblically about everything. Every area of life, learn to think Christianly and live our faith out with integrity and thoughtfulness in every area of our life. Now, why is this important? There was a massive study by Christian Smith, the sociologist now at the University of Notre Dame. And he made a point that might seem obvious to you, but I think it's really important. He said, the way we develop religious beliefs is the same as in other areas. In other words, there's not a special way we learn to develop beliefs about religion that's different from how we develop beliefs in, say other areas like relationships or culture or politics. There's a common way we develop beliefs. So think about it. Why is it that kids whose parents tend to be politically to the left tend to be politically to the left? Or kids whose parents are politically to the right tend to be politically to the right? Well, what happens? Well, maybe in the conservative home they have on Fox News. Maybe in the more liberal home they have on MSNBC or CNN. And what happens in these homes? People talk about politics over the dinner table when they're driving in the car. It's just kind of through the rhythm of life it comes up and kids learn to think about the world in a political way. I doubt almost any parent sit down and say, son, we're conservative. Here's what we believe about taxes. Daughter, we're liberal. Here's what we think about foreign policy. People don't communicate it that way. But it comes up naturally in conversation and kids learn to think about it. Let me ask you a question. How often do you talk about faith? Because if you just talk about faith, Sunday morning after church or Wednesday night after Bible study, whether you intend to or not, you're sending the message that faith can be compartmentalized to these areas of our life. That's why Moses, long before the secular shift in Western culture says, talk about them here and there and make them a natural part of the rhythm of life. But then he actually gives some specifics. He says, talk about them when you sit in the house. In other words, talk about them over the family meal and isn't this how all of your families look over the family meal? (laughs) There's actually a picture from an article that I would invite you to read. It's on Google. It's called The Magic of the Family Meal. It's called The Magic of the Family Meal. You can search it. And they described how a trend has come back in an American family of carving out time to have meals together. And in this article, they said the statistics are clear. Kids who regularly dine with their folks or significant adults in their life, less likely to be involved in risky behavior, more likely to have a positive self-image, and more likely to do well in school. And then they said something that really got my attention. They said, it's at a family meal, where stories are told, jokes are laughed at, and the wider world is viewed through the lens of the family's values. Even on nights, they said, when the talk is fast and the food is cheap, it instills in kids a sense of identity, a sense of belonging, and a healthy sense of relationship. Do you know why this is so important? Because one study and one factor that's coming out about Generation Z is that this is a lonely and ironically disconnected generation. They're connected digitally, but they are disconnected relationally from significant adults that can speak into their life. A&E had a show last year called Undercover High where 21 to 26-year-olds went back to high school undercover to report what happened. You can watch the episodes online. So they're like three to eight years out of high school. They were stunned at how disconnected adults were from students and how technology has changed everything. So in our house, when we sit down, we don't have a family meal every night, we can't. Sometimes I travel, my daughter's competitive gymnastics, my son's in basketball, we do our best to carve out the time. You work with what you have, I get that. But we have a rule where technology is off. Except when the Red Sox are playing, right? You don't want to be legalistic. (laughs) Friends, have boundaries with your kids. If you're a young person, have boundaries in your life with technology. Around 2012, there was a hockey stick increase in the amount of loneliness, and this is right when a new generation began almost overnight to have smartphones in their hands. Now, I'm not anti-smartphone. I use mine all the time. I love it. But we don't talk about how it affects our relationships negatively. Negatively. And sometimes dehumanizes us. A like on Instagram is not the same as a physical hug. Now, we don't always sit down at family meal, because I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, well, I mean, your dad's Josh McDowell. I'm sure when you sit down, the heavens part, <laughs> the light shines through, and your kids compete over who can most smoothly recite Psalms 23. That is not my family household. Can I tell you, we have the same issues with our kids as any parents do. But we sit down and we try to listen. We build a relationship. Sometimes I bring in a biblical passage and say, hey, kids, here's something I'm studying. What do you think? Sometimes a current event issue. Sometimes we just talk about school and sports. But in that relationship with intentionality, it's an opportunity to talk about God and pass on our values. Then he says, let's talk about them when you walk along the road. In other words, when you travel. Now, you probably don't walk to Dallas or Austin anymore. You probably do not walk to the grocery store. That's how they used to travel. Now we drive. That's an opportunity to connect with kids or your grandkids, sometimes just in conversation. So we have technology off in the cars. Unless it's a long trip, we'll let them watch a movie. Turn technology off. So we can just talk and we can be together. And I started something with my kids, I just call the question game. I just ask them questions. And because my kids are so competitive, we have to guide it so it doesn't descend into this like battle who wins. I'm like, we're having conversation, we're having fun. But I'll ask them spelling, history, science questions, and I'll ask them questions about God and questions about the Bible, why? Because we assume there's knowledge in math, there's knowledge in science, there's knowledge in history, and there's also knowledge when it comes to religion. There's objective truth. It's not just feeling. And it creates conversation, sometimes better than others. When we started, my daughter, who's three, she was three at the time. She's 11 now. Every spiritual question I asked her, the answer had to be Jesus, right? So I say, Shauna, who's the son of God? Jesus. Shauna, who died on the cross? Jesus. Shauna, who walked in the water? Jesus. I thought one time, I'm gonna mix it up. So I'm driving. I can see her in the rear view mirror. She's sitting like in her car seat. She's three. I said, Shauna, it's your turn. Where do we go when we die? Without any hesitation, my three-year-old looks at me. She goes, jail. I think she might be Catholic. I'm not sure. And my Catholic friends, I'm like, can I say that in joke? They're like, it's funny. Don't worry about it. (laughs) When you travel, do you look for ways to connect and talk? Honestly, when I travel, I like to get stuff done. I try to take kids with me whenever I can. When I do, I don't get as much stuff done. But that's a sacrifice to build a relationship with your kids. And he writes this, talk about them when you lie down. In other words, at the end of the day. There is something about the end of the day where a young person's heart is often open and willing to just connect and talk. I tell my kids before I put them to sleep because you know where kids go for questions, right? When they have a question, where do they go? It's not mom. It's not their friends. It's Google or YouTube. Number one place. And... Yesterday, a girl said to me, she said, well, there's so much knowledge on the, on the web. I said, there's not knowledge, there's information. Those are different things. I want my kids to know they can come to me if they have questions, and I'll be honest with them. I won't embarrass them, I won't shame them. I'll tell them really what I think. So I tell my kids all the time, especially when I tuck them in, I'll say, you know, Scotty, Sean, Shane, you can ask your dad anything. If I don't know the answer, I'll tell you. Because studies show that kids do not leave the faith Because of doubt. They leave because of unexpressed doubt. We don't feel the freedom to ask questions and share an adult who will help them find an answer. So I tell my kids every time I can remember when I tuck them in, hey, you know you can ask your dad anything. My son, he was he must have been about seven. He goes, Okay, dad, I got a question for you. I said, What is it? He goes, Who is Jesus praying to in the garden? I said, what do you mean? He said, Jesus is God, right? I said, yes. He said, the Father's God, right? I said, yes. My seven-year-old says, was Jesus praying to himself? I said, go ask your mom. (laughs) Shortly after this, I was at school, and one of his, he was in second grade now, one of his teammates, or one of his classmates' moms came up to me, kind of frantic. She goes, oh, I've been looking for you, Mr. McTowell, can you help me? My daughter asked me. Second grader, does, did God love Osama bin Laden? What do I say? I said, oh, that one's easy. She said, really? I said, yeah, that's simple. She goes, well, what do I say? I said, here's what you say. What do you think? <laughs> Friends, I am totally serious. Questions are almost always better than answers. Don't you want to know why a second grader's interested in or bothered by who God loves and God doesn't love? Jesus asked a ton of questions when he knew the answer because he wanted to elicit faith, help people think, and cultivate a relationship. Questions are almost always better than answers. The last one says, talk about them when you get up, in other words, in the morning. Talk about them when you get up. On Wednesday mornings, I used to have a late class, kind of late morning, so I'd go early to the local coffee shop and I would read, write, study, work on stuff. And I was there one morning and I saw a grandfather with his grandson, Bible was open, and they were talking about the story of the Good Samaritan. Came back the next week, grandfather, grandson, Bible was open, and they were talking about like a biblical view of stewardship and financing and money. Came back the next week, grandfather, grandson, Bible was open, and they're taught like relationships and dating and kind of a biblical way of thinking about marriage and boundaries. And I sat there, I thought, oh my goodness. Every day before school, or at least every Wednesday before school, this grandfather's taking his grandson and just pouring his life into him relationally because he loves him so much. I sat there and I thought, wow. How different would like, the young people that I work with in my classroom be if they had an uncle or a teacher or a grandparent who just kind of intentionally poured into them like this? How different would my state be in California? My state would be so different if people knew basic biblical principles you find in Proverbs like, don't spend what you don't have. <laughs> kind of biblical ideas of stewardship. How different would your church be? You as an adult looked at this generation and said, you know what? We're going to invest in them. We're going to pour in them. It's not just a program. As important as programs are, these are individuals. And this grandfather had a vision, didn't he? He was willing to spend five bucks a week to take his son. Actually, it was Starbucks. Eight bucks. <laughs> coffee and donut. And just relationally pass on truth. This happened for the whole year. I'd see him across the way, and it was like May, school's getting out, and they stood up, and they're walking out, and I don't remember the kid's name, but he says, like, do you want to continue this in the summer or pick it up next year? And he, say, he goes, Papa, if you're okay with it, I'd love to keep doing this through the summer. I was so moved by this that I sent out a tweet. I don't remember the words or how I sent it. It's something to the effect of watching this grandfather week after week, take his grandson a coffee before school and just biblically mentor him in the scriptures. Awesome, or something like that. And I watched the comments. You know what one of the number one comments was? I wish I had a grandfather like that. Friends, sometimes we look at this generation, we think they're just on their phones all the time. They talk a different language. Their music is loud. They dress weird. They don't treat me the way I want to be treated. And we see this whole generation through that lens. One thing I know is that this generation is the greatest resource in the church that we have. And the heart of this generation is to be called the Beloved by a sincere and authentic adult who says, you matter to me, and I'm gonna help you be everything God has designed you to be. Go to their sporting events. Write them a letter. Pray for them. Spend time with them. Find a way to invest in this generation who has more challenges, one click away, than you and I ever dreamed of Growing up. Now some of you might be sitting here going, man, you're making me feel guilty this morning. I wish I had done this with my kids. Some of you might be thinking, I did this with my kids. They didn't turn out how I wanted them to. What now? Well, first thing is give yourself some grace. It's not going to do any good to beat up on yourself. We've all made mistakes. Give yourself grace. But realize God's heart is more broken if your kids aren't following the Lord than your heart or my heart could ever be and don't give up. Don't give up. Maybe take one baby step to just say, I'm going to keep praying, and I'm going to take a step to restore that relationship and believe God can work miracles. Friends, Generation Z is the greatest resource in the church. When it's all said and done, I don't think any of us are going to go, you know what? On our deathbed, I am so glad I had that awesome house, as much of a blessing as that is, or that car, or this success in my profession. And Those things matter to a degree. I think we're going to look back and say, what legacy have we left for the next generation? And how is that going to echo for generations to come? That's what matters deeply. Amen? Amen. You guys got here late, so the books are out. Snooze, you lose. So I don't have any more, which is not a bad thing. But just in case you want to follow up, my, my website is seanmcdowell.org. I blog two or three times a week, and I'm not trying to waste your time or show cat videos as funny as those are. Helpful blogs to help you think what does it mean to be a Christian today, to engage this generation, to think about issues from a Christian worldview. I use Twitter as a resource. There are a number of books that are up there that you could find specifically helpful to pass on faith to the next generation. I was told the Lifeway Resource Store has some of the books as well, so go frequent your local bookstore. Thank you for having me. I've been hanging around all weekend, and I got a flight so I can get back and tuck my kids in tonight. I hate doing this, but I'm gonna grab my bag, and I'm gonna head out so I can see the kids. I love you guys but I do love them more. I'm not going to lie. <laughs> Gary, thank you, brother.
0: John. So, as you guys know, our favorite uh, verse on parenting for Bev and I is third John 4. It says, I have no greater joy than this to see my children walking in truth. And there is no greater joy. There's probably no greater heartache the other way, either, is it, when children don't walk in truth. And so, uh, I'd like to close this by praying for that and praying that indeed we'll walk in truth. You, know, you spent a whole lot of time talking about Generation uh, X, Y, Z, right? So Z, Generation Z, 7 through 22-year-olds. So I want to pray for you guys. We, we're, if you're 7 through 22, would you stand? 7 through 22-year-olds. Let's thank God for having these young people with us today. Thank you. Thank you for being here. We appreciate that. And he's right. You are the greatest resource this church has. You're the greatest resource we have. So let's all stand together and I'm going to pray. Father, we are grateful. We're grateful for these young people. We pray for their parents, their grandparents, that they would have input into their lives that honor you. We thank you for this resource you've sent to Temple Bible Church and these young people. And I pray blessing over them. I pray those that don't know you would consider the Savior who gave his life for them. And those that do would walk with him and honor him all the days of their life. And Father, we may be a church that reaches out to these young people, makes them feel loved and cared for, but more than that, point them towards you, our Savior. And Father, for those of us as parents and grandparents, we pray indeed that we would go the way that we desire to point the generations to come to the Savior. We pray in his name, amen.